Think about it. How many people can speak knowledgeably, masterfully, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the threat from China, and the Denver Broncos? <laughs> Condoleezza Rice on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. The daughter of a Presbyterian minister and a school teacher, Condoleezza Rice grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Denver, a master's degree from Notre Dame, and a doctorate, once again, from the University of Denver. Dr. Rice has served in many positions, including provost of Stanford University, U.S. Secretary of State, and now director of the Hoover Institution, the think tank here at Stanford. Condi, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Peter. We'll come back to football. Please do. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, it, there's a certain chill in the air this morning here in Northern California, it's, and it's football it's weather. Football it's weather. football it's weather. It's football right. weather. Yes. It is indeed. So, however, one question I just can't, I have to start with this. You joined the new ownership group of the Denver Broncos. The deal's gone through. Yes. You are yes. an owner of the Denver yes. Broncos. So what about it? Their record last year was 7-10. and 10. Right. What's your prediction for this year? Uh, I never predict these things. All that I can say is we've got a great quarterback in Russell Wilson. We've got a new team. Uh, this is a new coach and new team. And so uh, let's check it out after about, um, you know, halfway through the season. People get all kind of, oh, my goodness, what's going wrong? It's a long season, but um, I think we're going to be really just fine and be very good and, and bring back those traditions of a Denver Broncos team that I remember as a kid growing up in Denver when there was something called the Orange Crush, one of the great defenses of all time uh, that went on to take the Broncos to the Super Bowl for the first time. So uh, check back with me. This is interesting because you're talking, you are transferring to football your skills as a professional diplomat. <laughs> all right. Uh, I want to come to the, to, the, to the large issues of the day in just a moment, but I, I realized that the last time we sat down for an interview was your first day as director of the Hoover Institution. Oh, I that long, yeah. And when I asked you what everybody was wondering, which was, why would she take that job? This is what you replied. I'm quoting you, Condi. We have challenges piling up to the governance of free peoples. And that suggests to me we need really good answers. I thought there's no better place to search for those answers than the Hoover Institution, a place with a very solid foundation in the importance of freedom. Close quote. Two years and a couple of months later, how's it going? It's going great. Uh, what I've been really, really encouraged uh, by, Peter, and you know, you know this place. We have wonderful senior fellows who are at the forefront of their areas in economics, in education, um, in technology and governance. And uh, what really has been uh, terrific is to see the collaborative spirit of these uh, senior fellows. People often think academics are people who go into a room and they study on their own. But if you're going to have anything to say about the big problems of our time, they're too big for any one person, for any one discipline. And so what we really have here at Hoover is an interdisciplinary, multi-fellow approach to these big issues. What to do about the rise of China, uh, or as we call it, Chinese sharp power. Great, right. great uh, phrase, I think. How to think about a better K-12 future for our children, including so that parents have choices, uh, no matter their station in life, as to where their kids will go to school. Uh, we sit in the Silicon Valley, 
And so technology, which is shaping our world dramatically every day, new technologies, how do we think about the institutions? Um, how do we think about the role of state and local governance? You know, we are a federal system. And here at Hoover, we talk about what, uh, what President Hoover said, limited government. Right. But it also meant getting government at the right level. So not everything should happen in Washington, D.C. And so we're working very hard on those areas. And something that I'm very excited about now uh, our new Center for the uh, Revitalization of American Institutions. We were bequeathed by the founders extraordinary institutions, a constitution that for more than 230 years now has been a vehicle through which Americans have been able to exercise their desires, their, to, to deal with their fears, to uh, exercise their rights. Uh, Madison and uh, those who created the Constitution knew that you needed institutions through which to channel people's passions, as they would have said. <clears throat> and yet we know that those institutions are under attack these days. Uh, those who say, well, they're not worthy because they were the institutions that supported and sustained slavery. Well, they're also the institutions that freed slaves. And when I was a little girl in Birmingham, Alabama, eventually got to the descendants of slaves full rights in America. Uh, those who say, well, they're elitist, those institutions. But Americans understand that that constitution is almost their personal protector. And it really doesn't matter what station in life you came from, that constitution is there for you. So somehow we have to rekindle Americans' belief in their institutions, their confidence in their institutions, in their elections, in their judiciary. And so uh, we're very excited that uh, one of our new fellows, someone that we have recruited from uh, Princeton University, one of uh, America's great political scientists, uh, Brandis Keynes Rohn, is the new director for that center. And we're gathering people together to look at this extraordinary set of institutions that we were given uh, and how can we make them better in the modern era? Could I just on, on that one for a moment, because what you're saying is very striking. We hear, as you of course noted, over and over again these days, attacks on the founding, in particular on the founding. I'm thinking of the 1619 Project. And there is a point to be made. Slavery had existed on this continent for more than a century before the founding, and some large proportion of the founders were slave owners. So we have the notion, A, that this means the entire enterprise was misbegotten, fruit of the poison tree is what would be the legal term, was misbegotten from the very beginning. And then there is another way to look at it, which goes far back in American history, and that would be Frederick Douglass. Yes who said in particular of the three-fifths rule in the Constitution that, that slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person and that slavery was permitted, although the Constitution named a date by which the importation, the slave trade could be ended and they ended it on January 1st of that. Yeah. All right. But Frederick Douglass referred to these measures as scaffolding yes. to permit the construction of the edifice to be removed as soon as it was no longer needed. Yes. So, so he distinguished from the get-go between temporary accommodations 
and the underlying structure. And you're with Frederick Douglass. I'm with Frederick Douglass. Um, I believe that uh, America has what I've called uh, not the fruits of a poison tree, but a birth defect. Uh. We were born with a birth defect. Do I wish that uh, the founders had all been John Adams, uh, who not just refused to hold slaves, but actually defended slaves mm -hmm. uh, in the Amistad uh, incident? Yes. Do I think that Thomas Jefferson uh, might have been accused of, uh, let's say, talking on both sides of the issue to talk about uh, these great principles of all men being created equal and yet holding slaves? Of course. But human beings are imperfect. And somehow today, we want to go back and insist on perfection for people who lived hundreds of years ago in a different climate and a different set of mores. And I sure hope that there's nobody out there judging us 100 years from now in terms of our mores, because human beings are imperfect. You know that I'm very religious. And my, my grandmother had a wonderful phrase. She'd say, the only human being who was perfect was Jesus Christ, and that's because he was God. And I think we have to understand people in their context, the founders in their context, but to celebrate what they gave to us. This constitution that uh, is so remarkable that it has slowly but surely made America a more inclusive place. It slowly but surely meant that we the people, which was not what was meant right. about me, now I'm included in We the People, and we continue to make progress. Now, it doesn't mean that we can just rest on our laurels about right. it, right. because um, I do think Franklin was right. It's a republic if you can keep it. Right. And our great patron, uh, George Schultz, as you remember, used to wear that tie that said, democracy is not a spectator sport. So we can't all just sit around and, and say the glorious institutions. We have to work at it. We have to work at it every day. And uh, that requires a, a renewal of commitment, not just to our rights, which we're very good at asserting, but also to our responsibilities. So, so your fundamental position is, with regard to the Constitution and the founding, and the fundamental institutions of the country, renewal, reform where necessary, not overthrow. Absolutely, right. absolutely. And, and if I, when I would go abroad as secretary and people would say, but how can you talk about democracy in X, Y country when your country was founded uh, with slaveholders? And I would say, yes, uh, but it's that same constitution that I took an oath of office to as a descendant of, by the way, both slaves and slave owners. And uh, it's that constitution that was progressive enough that today I stand before you as the Secretary of State of the United States of America. And somehow that, and people didn't say much after that. Unanswerable. <laughs> All right, so I can only do this if we set up some lights and cameras, but I've done it. I have you to myself. You too. So I'm going to ask you to give me a seminar in the way to think if you have policies, prescriptions, if you know what we ought to do, say so. But what I'm interested in is the way you think, the way a professional thinks about the big issues, the foreign policy issues of the day. And then, of course, we'll save this little lovely piece of cake right here, which is football. We'll get to that. Yes, yes. Walter Russell Mead, Russia and Ukraine. Walter Russell Mead in the Wall Street Journal, just yesterday as we taped this show, quote, Vladimir Putin 
has responded to the weakening of his military position by annexing four contested regions inside Ukraine, declaring that the conflict in Ukraine is a war for the survival of Russia and raising the specter of a nuclear strike. These are words that appeared at the Wall Street yes. Journal yesterday. Uh, Mead continues, this represents the most dangerous international confrontation since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The most serious confrontation in the last six decades? Oh, I don't doubt that it's an extremely serious confrontation. Um, I, I don't like to try to rank confrontations because they're always different and the circumstances right. are different. Uh, the, the Russians were not a major nuclear power at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. One reason that uh, Khrushchev put those uh, missiles in Cuba was he couldn't reach the United States from the territory of the Soviet Union. Wow. So it was a different time. But yes, it's dangerous. But uh, there are three things I'd like people to understand about this conflict. The first is Vladimir Putin is not trying to reconstruct the Soviet Union. He's trying to reconstruct the Russian Empire. Mm -hmm. He is a Russian nationalist for whom an independent Ukraine is an anathema. And he believes in the concept of the Kievan Rus. They're all one people. Well, the Ukrainians have a different view. Right. And that's the second point. The Ukrainians actually are a nation. They speak a language that is distinct from Russian. I have pretty good Russian. Ukrainian, I'll make mistakes if I try to understand it. And they believe that they are a distinct people. Now, it is true that they've only been independent uh, a few decades in their history here and there. They've been part of somebody else's empire. But what's remarkable is that this Ukrainian nation has remained intact. And that's one of the things that Vladimir Putin didn't understand. And so he thought they would be welcomed by the Ukrainians, but actually they're fighting for their nation and they are becoming forged as a nation even more every day. So that's the second thing to mm -hmm. recognize. Now, if you think and you take those together, you will understand why Putin now really has a problem. Because he essentially went to the Russian people and said, I'm doing this special military operation to put us back together with our brothers in Ukraine. And oh, it won't really affect your lives because they're gonna rise up and support us and this'll all be over. And, and by the way, I think he tells Xi Jinping the same thing. This'll be over in a few days. The Russian military went into that conflict with five days of provision and their uh, dress uniforms for the parade. That just shows how off he was in his thinking. Oh, now all of a sudden, this Ukrainian nation is not just fighting back, they're pushing the Russians out of the territories that they've occupied. So now he's got a problem. And number one, he needs more people. So he has to do what he avoided until this moment, mobilize young Russian men to go to the front and they're fleeing in numbers. Uh, someone told me that one of the most heavily um, accessed uh, articles on the internet in Russia is, how do I break my own arm? because people don't wow. want to go, right? So suddenly Russians are in the fight and they don't like it. Secondly, Putin is sitting there. Whom with, you knew. Whom I knew. And I knew he was a Russian nationalist. I, it didn't fully, I didn't really fully sink in until I really began to think about why he does this. Now, so he's, he's had to mobilize the Russian people. That's bad. Uh, another point uh, to make is that he had to do something dramatic because we tend to think of autocrats or dictators as not having a politics to which they have to they respond. They don't have to answer to anyone. Right. 
he has to answer to these Russian nationalists, his right wing, if you will, that he actually mobilized in support of the war. So what he did was to cut off the liberals who might have been against the war. He jailed uh, Navalny. He shut down their websites. He made protesting the war a crime. But he actually embedded these Russian nationalist journalists in the military. They were supposed to talk about the glories of the war. Now they're talking about the failures of the war. And so he has to respond. So the mobilization and the annexation are the, the response. Final point, nuclear weapons. Yes, I would have told you, Peter, three months ago, oh, chances are zero. It's not zero. Maybe it's 10%, because I don't think he wants to cross that line. Russia would then be a permanent pariah. He himself would be a permanent pariah if he isn't already. But um, it's not zero, and that makes me uncomfortable. I, I do hope somebody's telling him, by the way, the prevailing winds go, go east, and so he would be polluting his own country. Could I, uh, one more question. And again here, I'm, I'm um, this may sound as though I'm being a devil's advocate a little bit, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, the question is how correctly to think about the problem. And the question is very simple. What have they got to do with us. Ukraine, so the Russians invade on February 24th. We've sent vast amounts of weapons yes. material. Yes. We have, as I understand it, hundreds of members of our special forces in place on the ground in Ukraine engaging in training. They're not involved in combat, but there are a lot of Americans there and, engaging and we've in been, training. And we've been training them since 2014, which is, by the way, why okay. they're good. Why they're good. Yes. Okay. All right. And we're sharing detailed intelligence with Ukraine. We even know that the Russians had their dress uniforms in their backpacks when they invited. And we've provided, I, I put this number together the day before yesterday. In the last 18 months, our aid to Ukraine, 17 billion. I think just yesterday, President Biden committed to some other untold, plus, all right. Yes. So, and the question is, why? Uh, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union for seven decades. Our economy grew. We remained at peace. It's demonstrable that we can get along without them. And, uh, and now, of course, uh, I'll just lay out the whole argument here instead of putting it out in bits and pieces. This is taking place in Europe. Germany is a rich country, to name only one. For the last, I checked this, as you know, NATO countries commit to spending at least 2% of their GDP on defense. We spend, I think the latest figure is close to 4%. I think it must have gotten, it touched 4% under during your administration. In the last 30 years, Germany has not once, not once fulfilled its requirement to spend 2% on GDP. So it would strike me, I mean, the test here is which is a test that you'll appreciate because you have a very keen sense for practical politics, not just diplomacy up here on the seventh floor, the, the fancy floor of the State Department, but the, or you go into a diner in Iowa and you have to explain to the waitress and the f farmers why we're gonna take their tax dollars and so what is our interest in Ukraine? Do you see the, the, yes, the whole, do. why don't the Europeans, do. maybe it'll take them a while, maybe yeah. it'll be sloppy, yeah. but for goodness sake, let Poland and Germany, and if, if Germany and France 
stood up as quickly and as 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 vigorously as Britain has, yes. they could handle it on their own. Yes. Goes the argument. Yeah, it goes the argument. All right. So I'm going to start with a general point that starts with some dates. Okay. 1914, 1941, 2001. Problems never stay confined. And you can act now or you can act later. And the idea that we can somehow, behind our great oceans on both sides and our peaceful neighbors to the north and south, just let the world take care of its own problems, it simply never worked out that way. So you really want to take that risk now? Secondly, we are, we've believed in a rules-based order. We've always said that, uh, you know, when a people rise up and they want to defend themselves, we should be there to help them, particularly if they're defending the values that are core to us. Right. And uh, this peaceful country sitting there that, by the way, we recognized, we recognized an independent Ukraine. We were part of the guarantor of their sovereignty and their security when we got them to give up our nu their nuclear weapons at the end of the Soviet Union. They're in the fix they are now. You better believe because it. Because we promised, we promised <coughs> that, that we'd take we were going to take them. care of them. Right. And so do we believe in the rules-based order? Do we want to live in a world where big countries simply uh, annihilate and, um, and then absorb smaller countries? I think we've done that, seen that picture before. Uh, around 1938, 1939, didn't work out so well. And then the last point that I would make to uh, my fellow Americans is that we, uh, as a people, represent and are a part of a country that is actually not a territorial or an ethnic or an, uh, it's not an identity of that kind. It's an idea. The American ideal is one of universal values. And so we either have to defend them or we don't. To your point about the Europeans, I went all over Brussels and every NATO meeting, just like every former Secretary of State going back, every president, please pay your 2%, please pay your 2%. Now I have to say, uh, you know, I, I, President Trump, from my point of view, wasn't the world's greatest diplomat, but the, he did go to them and say, you know, pay your 2% or I might not defend you. Now, I probably wouldn't have put it that way, but it actually did start to get people's attention. It did get their attention. attention. It did start to get people's attention. And uh, not only are they starting to pay up, but what has happened in Europe under because of Putin's invasion has changed the context in Europe in a fundamental way. For I, the better. For the better. The Germans now, a friend of mine said Putin has ended German pacifism and Swedish neutrality all in a few months. Can you imagine? And us, invented real nationalism and invented in Ukraine. And real natural, nationalism in Ukraine. And can you imagine Finland and Sweden as members of NATO now? By the way, strong countries with great capabilities now. This is a stronger, better NATO. Germany, I think, will play more of a role. Now, they've been slow in getting equipment to Ukraine. Sometimes it's hard to remember with the, the German uh, bureaucracy, the German defense ministry. For a long time, uh, we wanted a German army that would fight. Right. right? And so the defense. Happy their equipment yeah, work. so right. the defense gene in Germany is not that deep. The military gene in Germany is not that deep because it was our intention to subsume it right. in NATO, to subsume it in the European Union. 
that it is beginning to reemerge as something that we should celebrate. And I think when you've got people in Ukraine willing to die for our values, Europeans who are finally stepping up and even joining NATO, uh, and a world that is, that is saying, really, you're going to just extinguish your neighbor? We can't sit home from that fight. We will rue the day that we didn't play uh, our full role. All right, last question on Ukraine. Um, how does it end? A couple of quotations. Here's yeah. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. This is just last week. Yeah. I hope our leaders are going towards something, some averting process. She had earlier in the same column said, we cannot dismiss the possibility. As you just said, yeah. right. I was not looking forward to hearing that from you. You yeah. just said we can't yeah. dismiss the possibility of a nuclear strike. I hope our leaders are working towards some averting process, maybe along the lines of French President Emmanuel Macron's urging for a negotiated peace. That's the first quotation. Here's the second quotation. You and I were both in an event here at the Hoover Institution about 10 days ago when Neil Ferguson, our colleague Neil, had just returned from Ukraine. And someone asked him about the possibility of a negotiated settlement. And Neil said, I made notes. If you ask President Zelensky of Ukraine to negotiate a peace in which Russia kept the Donbass, that is to say, the eastern portion of Ukraine, Zelensky would say no. The Ukrainian people would say no. Would not accept it. Close quote. Are, are, so yes. how does this yeah. one, your yeah. professional yeah. diplomat, yeah, this is this is intractable plus yes. and dangerous. Uh, well, and Vladimir Putin has uh, never given any indication that he wants a negotiated solution. And in fact, by now annexing Ukrainian territory to be part of Russia, he's essentially, he would have to give back Russian territory now. So where does that leave us? And uh, with all due respect to those who talk about an off-ramp for Putin, he just keeps closing them off. Himself. Himself. Are you really going to tell the butcher of Bucha? Uh, that you can now sit down and negotiate over Ukrainian territory. Uh, I don't see it now. We may get there if the Ukrainians continue successfully to push Russians out of the territories that they have seized, uh, if they continue to uh, give the lie to the idea that these are now Russian-owned territories by raising the Ukrainian flag all through the Donbass, Maybe there will come a time when either Vladimir Putin or somebody around him will say, uh, this isn't going so well. And maybe, you know, we're not good. We mobilized 300,000 people, probably most of whom aren't actually usable in a military sense for a long time. Maybe it's time to think about saying, let the Russians decide that it's time to negotiate. Let the Ukrainians be in the strongest possible position that they can. Because people who believe that diplomacy can fix problems on the ground are, are simply wrong. Diplomacy is a reflection of the balance of power on the ground. And, and that 10% possibility of a nuclear strike? We, How? we, we simply can't be, uh, self-deter. We can't, we can't do it. Uh, I said 10%. That's the diplomatic know, that's, equivalent of self-censorship. That's the diplomatic equivalent of self-censorship. And the more that you, I, I think actually the Biden administration has been pretty good about this, saying, you know, there will be uh, ca catastrophic consequences, leave it undefined, uh, keep funding the Ukrainians. And, uh, you know, we also have to wonder if those generals around Putin want to die with him. Right. All right. Another cheerful topic. 
Again, I'm holding out football, not just yeah, to our viewers, yes. but to you. We'll get to football. China and Taiwan. Yeah. On August 2nd, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Taiwan is the island off China, to which Chiang Kai-shek retreated with his troops in 1948 when the communists seized power on the mainland. Taiwan is now a democracy and a thriving yes. market economy. All right, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan on August 2nd, and here's the way the People's Republic of China responded. And I'm just going to quote the Associated Press. This is a news story, not an opinion piece. Quote, during the nearly week-long maneuvers that followed Pelosi's visit, China sailed ships and flew aircraft regularly across the median line in the Taiwan Strait, claiming that boundary did not exist, fired missiles over Taiwan itself, and challenged established norms by firing missiles into Japan's exclusive economic zone. Close quote. Since taking office, President Biden has on four separate occasions said that if China attacked Taiwan, the United States would defend the island. By the way, on all four of those occasions, the White House staff said, well, wait a moment, but he didn't really mean but to... the president meant to say... Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Still, he said it. So if I may... I'll just begin with that same sort of basic question. Taiwan is this big, China is this big, and they're both thousands of miles away. What do we care? Well, again, we took certain obligations under the Taiwan Relations Act when we recognized uh, the People's Republic of China as the successor state. In other words, they got the UN seat. We said to those who had fled to Taiwan, we're going to continue to let you have your life, uh, but we're going to recognize China. We took some obligations, including a, a rather complicated formula that, uh, that governs the Taiwan Straits. It actually was not as straightforward as what we said to Ukraine at the time of their giving up nuclear weapons. We said, no one should, should disturb the status quo. So that meant, really, we don't expect the Taiwanese to have an, a referendum on independence, mm. and we don't expect the Chinese to put pressure on Taiwan militarily or especially to attack Taiwan. And under those circumstances, we would recognize one China, which is the, the policy, and uh, we would say, but we will help Taiwan defend itself should somebody change, try to change the status quo. The problem with that formula is, as you have outlined, a lot of the, foreign, or the fundamentals have shifted. Taiwan is no longer a dictatorship. It's a vibrant democracy. It's a vibrant economy. It's pushing the edges of wanting to be recognized in the international system. And we, uh, from the Bush administration on, have said Taiwan should have more diplomatic space. They should be members of the World Health Organization, for instance, and that kind of thing. Uh, on the other hand, China's gotten more belligerent about Taiwan because under Xi Jinping, who my friends who are China watchers say, he sees himself as wanting to be in the pantheon next to Mao, all right? So supersede Deng Xiaoping, supersede Hu Jintao, Zhang Zemin, and... Spare us from leaders who want to be great exactly. men. Exactly, and the restoration, as they call it, the restoration meaning China has to have back all of the territories that it lost, including Taiwan, is his ticket to uh, eternity, I suppose, in what becomes the, the Chinese communist uh, pantheon. So if you take those two, Taiwan has changed and China's ambitions have changed. 
it's harder and harder to keep that little line that says no one should change the status quo. And China keeps chipping away at the status quo. The Taiwan Straits are no longer international waters, they say. Now, I would not have gone to Taiwan had been Nancy Pelosi, because part of the problem is she goes, she has a trip, but it's the administration that has to deal with the consequences. And so we always have to remember that's a little bit fraught if you are right. in the administration. So, yes, but I still think that what we should do is to try to avoid a circumstance in which we have to make the decision is what it means to defend Taiwan. And that means uh, that we try to keep the situation calm. I think in some ways Taiwan is winning uh, in terms of its economy, in terms of its democracy. Um, we have, Peter, you know, I'm a professor and I talk to my students about this all the time. We have this, these devices in international politics. They are very careful formula that stay in place so you won't have war until circumstances changed. The division of Germany was a device. It right. stayed in right. place until underneath the circumstances changed. Then we were able to unify Germany fully and totally on Western terms. Germany's in NATO. The Warsaw Pact is gone. East Germany is gone. Had we tried to do that in 46 or 56 or 66 or 76 or 86, we would have had war. So I, I know I sound more conservative here than uh, conservative with a small C than my, a lot of my colleagues even here at Hoover. But I think this device has served us pretty well in the Taiwan Straits. And in the meantime, there are some things we should do. One is get the Taiwanese to be really serious about their own defense capability. So can, can I, can, sorry, yes, uh, yes. hold on because yes. I want to, uh, but yes. just further to that question, I think to myself as a layman, one answer to Taiwan small, China big, right. is Israel small, Arab world big. Exactly. And Israel is thriving. Right. And bit by all kinds of devices have right. been set in place right. and eventually superseded. Now right. we have the Abraham Accords. Right. You can fly across Saudi Arabia from Israel to the exactly. UAE, get off your plane and do business in the UAE. Exactly. This was, but. I, I just, I checked this up out. Taiwan now spends 2.1% of its GDP on its own defense, yeah. which sounds impressive by comparison with Germany. Right. Here's the percentage that Israel spends, 5.6%. Exactly. So you say, wait a minute, this little country, which is thriving, yeah. is serious about its right. defense. Right. And this little country, which wants to thrive, right. just isn't just, in the same way. Just so we way. get the lexicon right, this, little, this entity. This entity, excuse me. Right, right, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, but let me just, let me go. You're, you're right. And that's my point. Uh, I, I often say to, said to people in Europe, you know, the, the Federal Republic of Germany didn't wait for a better international situation to thrive. And so when the international situation changed under Gorbachev, the FRG was ready to ready absorb to the GDR. Yes. So your point about Israel, and, and let me just say these days, a little bit of a digression here. These days, I tell people one of the places I'm most optimistic about is the Middle East. And those aren't two Can words you that I... Yeah, I didn't used to put optimism right. and Middle East in the same sentence. But the Abraham Accords, for which really they should have gotten the Nobel Prize, right? because... The Connie, Arabs, it's in the codicils. You can't give the Nobel Prize right, to Donald Trump. Right. Yeah, but you know. Clearly, clearly. But the but the um, the Abraham Accords 
uh, are a representation of the fact that the Arab states understand that they've got to change the nature of their economies. The 800-pound gorilla in the Middle East on technology is Israel. And so they're going to end, they've effectively ended the state of war with Israel, right. and they'll move on. Now back to Taiwan. Taiwan is a remarkable place. They have an amazing president. They have uh, transitioned to democracy. I have nothing but respect for them. Preparing, though, in a way that helps to deter China means not just a percentage of your defense spending, but the character of that defense spending. People who really understand military affairs tell me, you know, the Taiwanese military sometimes still looks like it's intending to retake the mainland. Uh, maybe learn some lessons from the Ukrainians about how they fought, about their territorial defense, about their ability to maneuver. And the other point I'll make is that many people, and I would count myself among them, don't think the Chinese really want to, an amphibious landing on Taiwan. That, that would look That's like D-Day plus. Right, right. So maybe it's cyber attacks and it's, uh, we got a little bit of a glimpse after the Pelosi visit. Maybe it looks more like a strangulation strategy toward mm -hmm. Taiwan. So I, I would hope that we can take some time with Taiwan, keep deterring China, keep doing the things we're doing to deter China, but make Taiwan as ready as possible if China were to try something. I said earlier in my remarks, we've been training the Ukrainians basically since the Crimea uh, events of 2014, and they're good. They maneuver like a Western military. They don't stand there like these continental militaries. They've used deception. They are, have you looked at how quickly they've been able to train on the equipment we've given them? They've used this time very well. I hope Taiwan will use this time very well, however much time they have before Xi Jinping feels he has to act on the restoration. Use that time very, very well. All right. Football. Good. There are two Condoleezza Rices. One has been on display for the last 25 minutes or so. Stateswoman, academics, academic, intellectuals, intellectual accomplished pianist. Um, <clears throat> one of these days I want to do a Christmas show where we just, we just sit down yeah, and talk about music. That, yes. All right. By the way, my own reading of you is that what you really are is a teacher. That's right. That's what it comes right down That's to. That's right. The title I'm most, uh, most, uh, most uh, proud, proud of, of right. is uh, professor. So that's one. And here's the other one an owner of the yeah. Denver Broncos. Yes. How do those two people go together? Well, it's very easy. You're the only child of a mother who was a fantastic musician and whose grandmother and who, for me, my grandmother and great-grandmother as well, and a father who was a football coach when you were born and thought you were gonna be his all-American linebacker. And so if you're an only child, it's mommy and daddy. You take a little bit from both. Uh, I love sports in general. Peter, you also know that I was a figure skater, kind yes. of figure skater, not a terribly good one. But I got up at 5, 4.45 every morning, went to the rink and worked. And, uh, and then I would come back and go to school and then I'd practice the piano and I competed in piano and I competed in figure skating. And my happiest moments with my dad were often, uh, you mentioned there's chill in the air yes. in September. And I called it that certain chill. It meant football was there. Yes. And my dad and I would go down to the corner drugstore and the- This is uh, it? We're in Denver in, now? In, no, we're in Birmingham. We're still in Birmingham. Point, I'm like uh, okay. five years oh, old. Oh, I see. All right, all right. And we would go and there's uh, Smith and Street's 
Pro Football Report, which was a magazine that dissected every team, and we would go through every team. And my dad would uh, watch the games with me, and he would say, it was X's and O's, this wasn't just playtime. Condoleezza, what are they doing? Oh, Daddy, that's a trap block. Condoleezza, what are they They're setting up a screen, Daddy. And so I have these wonderful memories of football with my father. And oh, by the way, with my mother, who said to me at one point, I studied piano from age three, and at 10 years old, I announced to my mother that I was quitting piano. And she said, you're not old enough or good enough to make that decision. Oh, and wow. because she let me, she kept me playing, you know, I got to play with Yo-Yo Ma and for the Queen of England, yes. God rest her soul. And so, um, yes, uh, my, my parents gave me access to everything. And I am just grateful to them that as a result, I have not just my academic career and my government career, but a lot of things that I just love to do. College football. College football and then we come back to pro football. A couple of years ago, you said this, I'm going to quote you. What's the value proposition for the student athlete? The best training, the best coaching, and a college degree, close quote. Okay, that's what the student athlete gets out of it. What does the university get out of it? Why is Alabama or Denver or Stanford University a better institution for, for having serious sports programs? Right, right. Well, because first of all, they get a mix of students who have done some amazing things. You know, that, that it's really tough to be that good at a sport and that good in a classroom. Right. And to, when, <clears throat> when I see these young student athletes, I think they are the most disciplined people I know because they've been up training since 5.30 in the morning while their classmates are sleeping in. And then they've gone through class, then they've practiced. It's, they're amazing people. And we want amazing people in our student bodies. The alumni love it. That's a, a great part of it. But, you know, Tiger Woods once told me that he said, I loved being at Stanford because I'd walk across campus and somebody would say, "That's that guy plays golf or something, doesn't he? And he said, you know, I felt like I was a part of something. And mm -hmm. so that's great. Now, as to the money, let me just address up front. Yes, there's a lot of money in, in pro sports and or in college sports, and maybe it's too much. But I will say this. If you don't have revenue from football, you will not have women's golf and men's tennis, and you surely Spoken won't the have former lacrosse, provost of Stanford, right? who because knows what I, she's talking about. Because I know the budgets. You handle the budgets. So um, that, if we want to have Title IX sports, and I'm a huge believer in Title IX. I was just um, a junior in college when Title IX came along, giving women equal access to sports. Uh, if you want to have those sports, uh, you're going to have to have the money from television contracts and the like or the university's gonna to have to pay for it all, and most universities aren't gonna do that. Okay, you, you just mentioned money, which brings us to NIL, yes. name, image, and likeness. Yes. Your friend, your friend, Mr. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, yes. in his concurring Supreme Court opinion last year in the case of NCAA versus Alston. Right. I am quoting your pal. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate. It is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law, close quote. Right. The Supreme Court hands down a decision against the NCAA. The NCAA cowers and shrieks in pain yeah. for a moment or two, and then changes its rules right. to permit student athletes to profit from the, from the use of their names, images, and likenesses. This is all just yes. getting started. Yes. But last year alone, Alabama quarterback Bryce Young 
signed endorsement deals worth over a million bucks. Yeah. This is going to change stuff. Uh, it is going to change things. But let me let me distinguish between what Brett Kavanaugh said and NIL. I've actually favored uh, NIL, name, image, and likeness. If, if you use my image or you want to use my image, maybe you should pay for it. And oh, by the way, it was only athletes that didn't have the ability to do this. Let's say that a Stanford music student does a spectacular video and it goes viral and somebody wants to pay them for the advertising on the video. That's, no rule against that's that No rule against that for the music student, but for the athlete, you couldn't do that. Mm. So I actually think for name, image, and likeness, just make it a marketplace for all, all students. And if you can sell your name, and you know, these days with these quote, something you and I are too old to fully understand, influencers out there, lots of students are selling their name, image, and likeness. The only thing I would say to these young people is, it's your name, image, and likeness for life. So be careful how you use it so that you're not getting your first great job out there and somebody says, did you really make that video? Right. So that's my point on name image. On the other hand, what I didn't like in that opinion is their workers. Because to say doesn't pay their workers. Because these are mm -hmm. our students. So I go back to the quote you used from me. The value proposition is we give you the best training, the best coaching, uh, and you get a college degree. Now, to be absolutely fair, a lot of universities have violated this. Uh, there was a point at which I will not name the college, but university. One of our Pac-12 uh, Pac uh, universities had a 14, 1-4% graduation rate for black male football players. 14%. That's criminal. And so, yes, if the value proposition isn't a true one, that's a problem. Uh, I think basketball in some ways is the hardest because you get one and done kids. Right, they, right. Uh, can I really say you got a college experience in seven months? No. But if you do get that college degree, it's a $1 million over your lifetime increment to your lifetime earnings. And by the way, you're getting it while your classmates are taking down loans and working 20 hours a week. So I do think that the value proposition is defensible. It has to be real. And a lot of universities have violated it. Uh, a lot of student athletes don't take it seriously enough. Uh, but if you can get that college degree while you're playing your sport, that's a, that's a marvelous thing. And that's why I wouldn't call them employees or workers. But that's separate and right. different from, from the name, name image, image, and likeness. Right. Yes. Pro ball. And I remind myself that I'm now talking to an owner of the Denver Broncos. The nature of the game itself. Yeah. Let's go back five years to what, in my judgment, must be the worst year since the NFL was founded. In 2017, the Journal of, of the American Medical Association published a study of 111 NFL players and found brain injuries in 110. NBC sports announcer Bob Costas, who commented on that study, quote, the existential question is the nature of football itself. I want to repeat that. The existential question is the nature of football itself. Costas continues, if I had an athletically gifted 12 or 13 year old son, I would not let him play football. Close quote. All right. The fun of the game yeah. is... I sound like a barbarian when I say this, but you know that in uh, Pop Warner football, the first thing those little boys get taught is how to hit and how to take a hit mm -hmm. and how to fall. Yeah. 
It is by its nature a violent game. Yeah. We've I, had five years to deal with concussion. Right. How and there is serious money to put yeah. it mildly in yeah. the NFL. No, has the league right. done the right a good job of addressing? I the, think the, the league has addressed it, but I think the league is constantly looking to and should look to do as much and more and more and as much as possible. Now it is a it is a violent game. I will tell you, I had two concussions as a figure skater. Right. And by the way, that is the first thing they teach you as a skater is how to fall. Oh, really? Yes. All right. Uh, and people have looked at how should we think about teaching how one tackles, teaching early how one tackles. Should in Pop Warner football, what should they be taught in Pop Warner? I think we have to look at the whole continuum of uh, football training. The league has tried with rules. I happen to know personally a very famous neuroscientist who uh, is who sits on a panel for the NFL on issues of concussion and brain injury and and how do you think about the helmet and how do you think about how much time in practice and the closeness of games. I think all of those things are fair game. People will make a choice, some of them, not mm -hmm. to have their children play. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, absolutely fair. What we have to do is to try to make the game as safe as possible for those who do choose to play it, because people are still going to choose to play it. May I ask it as a fan? I just don't know how this works. How much of you walk into an owner's meeting, Broncos owner's meeting, and say, I want to be briefed on what this team is doing? Yeah. And, and now, how, how much takes yeah. place, how much does and should take place at the team level? Of course, you have your own physicians. And how much should take place at the league level? How does yeah. that work? I, I'm not competent to answer that just yet. This yet. is yeah. Right. This was right. August. When right. Right. <laughs> and we're in October. All right. But I will say this: I think every owner um, should ask questions about what their team is doing, and review protocols, and are we doing the right things? Uh, the these are and and by the way, the players' association. Um, there is a players association that negotiates these things on behalf of the players, and they have been more and more concerned with this issue of player safety. And so uh, I would be the last to say that uh, you're going to solve all of the problems because it's kind of in the nature of the game. But just saying it's in the nature of the game is not an excuse for doing uh, everything that you possibly can to make it safer. And here's what I have not picked up even a hint of in the way you've addressed these questions. Yeah. I have not picked up even the slightest note of elegy. I don't have any feeling that you think I'm watching a dying game, but it'll be fun in, the, in, in its last couple of decades. You don't have anything no, like no, that. No, because feeling. I think oh. a lot has already changed in the game. I think more will change in the game. Um, and, um, you know, I've said um, I want football to remain vibrant, but that means that it has to remain a game where people are really concerned about doing the right thing for the players, or it won't, it won't remain vibrant. Why is football so American, so distinctively American? Yeah. They've, been, they've tried to get, I mean, it, it, just, it's, you it's just say the phrase yes. Italian football, and it just doesn't, it doesn't no, compute. No, There's a no. Canadian league, but still, it's an American game. How come? Well, I, first of all, I made the mistake many times of saying, you know, football and, have, and being uh, corrected soft, by my European right, friends, yes. yes. Right. No, uh, look, it's it, there's a clock, right? Uh, it, you have a limited amount of time to get it done. Americans are a little impatient. Um, I think that there is a sense of the team, which um, we 
operate very well in, but the individual matters a lot within that team. Um, I, I do think that there is something about the regionalization of it. You know, if you go to, if you go to a 49er game or a Bronco game or whatever, uh, there is going to be the CEO of the company and somebody who's on the line, and they're both going to be wearing their stuff, their 49er stuff or their Bronco stuff. Uh, it's a moment when communities come together. I think the league, the NFL in particular, um, has very close ties to the communities uh, in not just in philanthropy, but in just a sense of of the community's well-being. You know, a, a whole city can be depressed on the day after a, a bad game. And we don't have that many things anymore that we can all cheer together, that we can get around the water cooler and it's not, you're wrong or you're morally corrupt because you believe that. It's, boy, that was a really stupid mistake that our quarterback made. Could you believe? And everybody agrees. And so I just think there's a, a sense that it enhances our feeling of community. And uh, we are very individual, individualistic people, but we're also very communitarian. And we like things that kind of bring us together in that way. So a couple of last questions then. We don't have that much that brings us together. I, I'm going to read you a quotation, but first I'm going to tell you a little story. A little story is... It's a personal story, which I don't, or it is personal. I have a son who's just signed up with the Navy and I read the document and here's the last sentence over his signature. I will place my trust in my God. Fair enough. My God means we have some certain wiggle room in there for yes. different. All right. I will place my trust in my God and in the United States of America. And he signs it. First of all, I thought it was encouraging that at yes. this late stage of the yes. game, there's still a room for a certain kind of patriotic Patriot solemnity yes. in, in, in a bureaucratic document. But then I thought, that's what he's supposed to do. The United States of America needs to remain trustworthy. And yeah. Russia hoax, yeah. election right. irregularities, right. All of that. that. So hold that thought. And now let me read you. This, I found this in The Economist magazine last year. This was the way they ended an overview of the relation between us and China. China is increasingly sure that America is in long-term, irreversible decline. Say whatever we want to about Xi Jinping. He's not an idiot. No. And he's not a fool. China is increasingly sure that America is in long-term irreversible decline. China is now applying calculated doses of pain to shock Westerners into realizing that the old American-led order is ending. Yeah. How do you answer this? I would say people have underestimated the United States of America many times, always to their peril. Um, you know, you worked for a man that they underestimated. Uh, who brought this country together around economic vitality and a strong military and uh, laid the foundation for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Who would have thought it? An actor. An actor. By the way, there's another actor doing pretty well in Ukraine. Right. I think people like 
Xi Jinping because they're autocrats. They just don't understand that democracies are messy and they're all over the place and they argue and it's tough. But underneath, there's something in the fabric that Xi Jinping doesn't have, which is that Americans, after all, if they really detest what a government's doing, they can throw the bums out peacefully because we do have a system. We do have, have those institutions. We have those institutions. It comes back to the fact that we have institutions that say we are governed by the consent that we give to those who would govern us, not the other way around. And that's incredibly firm foundation. Now, again, you can't take it for granted. I, I worry a lot about uh, what's happening with our elections. You know, I will tell you, when people say electoral fraud, electoral uh, you know, you know, suppression or voter suppression, voter fraud, they mean to end the conversation. Mm. And so could we just go to, could we improve our elections? Do we really want people to have to stand in line for 27 hours? Right. Uh, do we really want to, why couldn't we have voter ID? There are lots of ideas out there to improve it. But if we could get a little less in our corners and sort of yell at each other with, uh, with phrases that uh, imply that you are morally corrupt, uh, we could probably get back to the place that Americans would begin to believe more that we are really a functioning democracy. And I, I go back to the work we're doing on state and local. Uh, we often now have mayors or governors, and it's really interesting. They have to get things done. They have to balance a budget. They have to work at... They're doing jobs, not talking jobs. They're doing jobs, not talking jobs. And so uh, here at Hoover, we believe in free enterprise. Now, the economy is going through some tough times. But would anybody rather be in any economy than that of the United States of America these days? We believe in individual liberty. Would you rather be any place other than the United States of America where we assert our individual liberty all the time? And we believe in limited government. But that means we've got government up and down the, uh, the levels that can focus on us and what we need. And actually, the closer you get to the people at the level of government, the better it seems to, to be. So we've got a lot going to us. And I would just say one other thing to Xi Jinping and to those, maybe Vladimir Putin and others. You know, autocratic envy, we have to be very careful. Because, yes, you're right, Xi Jinping's a smart man. But unless, if you're going to be omnipotent, maybe you'd better be omniscient, too. And that's why these autocrats make big mistakes, zero COVID, one-child policy, invading Ukraine because you think they're just going to fold. Democracies are messy, but we generally avoid the really big mistakes. So placing your trust in the United States of America is still a pretty good bet. It's an awfully good right. bet. Last question. The Reverend John Wesley Rice, Jr., your dad. We lost him uh, almost 20 years yeah, almost ago. Almost 20 now. years almost ago. Almost 20 years ago. What would he have said <laughs> when he was raising you in the segregated Birmingham, right. Birmingham Alabama, right. if he knew that one day his little girl would be an owner of the Denver Broncos? He would have probably said, oh, she finally got a really important job. <laughs> <laughs> He would have loved it, and I would have loved to take him to a game. But um, I just have to say, um, I won the lottery when it came to parents. Uh -huh. And I thank God every night for the parents I had, because they, in segregated Alabama, believed that I could be anything that I wanted to be. And I think they, they might be okay with what I became. Condoleezza Rice, director of the Hoover Institution and 
owner of the Denver Broncos. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge on the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.